Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what Guillermo del Toro does for your breakfast if you eat just before you watch his movies. For your breakfast just for watching Blade 2? What time do you watch it? <laughs> on the train on the way to work. Okay, fair enough. I'm Seb Patrick and joining me to spray on some Suck Puppies nut juice are... James Hunt. And I'm on Woman. Brilliant dialogue from David Goyer there. He's, he's an absolute master <laughs> of witty repartee. <laughs> Um, Amon, welcome back to the podcast. I think it's been a little while since we since we had you on. How are, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. Uh, and you chose uh, the film that we're covering on this episode, which if you didn't get it from the, the legendary quote at the start or indeed the cover artwork or title, is Guillermo del Toro's 2002 film Blade 2. But before that, we will also discuss some of the latest comic book movie and TV news, although despite the fact that it's been a little while since we um, recorded, there's not been a huge ton of news. There's been a lot of talking about movies rather than stuff actually happening uh, to do with them. The discourse, with a capital D, <laughs> has got very out of hand uh, in these wintry months, but we'll we'll come to some of that. Not all of it, but some of it. But before any of that, Amon, congratulations are in order, because since you were last on the episode, your career has continued its ascent and you have been inducted into the uh, London Film Critics Circle. You're the second of our guests to be a member. Uh, Matthew Turner, who's been on a couple of episodes previously, is also in that esteemed group. Uh, my, my application was turned down because apparently you have to know about cinema and not just comic book movies. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so Amon, for our for our opening question, I, I wanted you to explain uh, what's it like being in the critic circle. It's fun. It's fun. Um, it means that you get a slightly higher level of access to screenings, which is fun. It means that you get sent a whole bunch of screeners for movies in awards contention. So, my screener for the small independent movie called Let me just check my notes here. Um, uh, ben. One second. Aven Avengers colon Endgame. Yeah, that screener <laughs> that screener arrived the other day. Hang on, that's that that's up for awards, but I thought I thought the Oscars were only for cinema. Technical awards. Technical <laughs> awards. Uh so yeah, and, and all, all that stuff is cool. I, I don't know when I'm gonna find the time to watch it, honestly. I'm I'm a busy dude right now. Um but yeah I, I, to be honest, to be honest, I've heard I've heard it's quite skippable. I, um, you know, yeah, I, I don't think it's really worth it. Good to know. But yeah, no, the as as you mentioned the, for my career, this this year has been incredible and not just critic circle and uh, other stuff as well i think the the empire stuff is going really well i was on tv the other day um talking about uh blue story and other stuff like that so yeah this has been a really good year and you know many many goals which i've managed to achieve and i've already set myself some new ones for 2020 which is just around the corner 
that is insane to say. I need to do my Christmas shopping. I need to get the Christmas tree. All that stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, thank you. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a good year. Just don't forget the little people when you're at the top. That's all, that's all I'm asking. <laughs> to be honest, I was surprised when you said you still wanted to come on and do the with us. So, you know, nice one. <laughs> I always remember where I started. Honestly, I... I Went back and listened to like I, my one of my one of my first podcasts was doing it with with you guys, and I was so timid. Uh, <laughs> I always didn't recognize myself. Hang on, was that wasn't your first one Deadpool? Yeah, wasn't Deadpool the one where you spent about twenty minutes outlining <laughs> your idea? Like if that's if that's you timid, then then this one's gonna be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was good. Oh, good times. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, now nah, um, obviously I've been on the Empire podcast a couple of times, and I know uh, a couple of people who do that podcast are big fans of this podcast, rightfully so. Um, so yeah, I always remember where I started, and I you know I do try, <laughs> and I, I've got a number of podcast things which pop up on my you know phone notifications, and I do try and get to you when I can. Uh, so yeah. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> That's a ringing endorsement. If, if everyone just tries to get to us when they can, I'll, I'll be happy. I'm a busy dude! What can I say? <laughs> right, well, let's move on from all of this inside baseball stuff. I'll, I'll rephrase. I'll be, anytime I see Cinematic Universe pop up on my phone, I drop everything and I'm like, I need to listen to this right. now. Doesn't matter what's going on. Doesn't matter if I need to do, to do a review. Doesn't matter if I'm in a screening. I walk out the screening. I put my headphones on. <laughs> Cinematic Universe. I need to listen to this. It's awesome. There we go. And that is that is our official pull quote from TV and radio's <laughs> own Amon Woman. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. Well, as I say, let's yeah, let's let's move on from being uh, tirelessly meta-referential about ourselves and talk about all of the inside baseball chat that's been going on in movies and stuff as well. Because uh, as I say, I, I, barely any of this stuff is kind of announced news. Uh, a lot of it is speculation, rumor, and discussion, and all that kind of stuff. Um, let's start with a topic that I think we thought we'd probably moved on from because it had reached the kind of natural end of its cycle and there definitely wasn't going to be any more of it. Maybe when awards season comes round, it'll pop up again. I really thought we'd be done talking about Joker now, um, but apparently there might be a sequel. And this, So this was reported initially as, as happening, effectively. I can't remember. Can you remember, Amon, which which outlet initially reported it and then backtracked heavily to say that it was just sort of potentially in the works? I I can't remember because honestly, I saw it. I just you know shrugged and went meh, and I just tried to <laughs> stay away from any sort of Joker two details. I just didn't want you know to uh, really dig into. Okay, it too so much. Okay, so it was it was Hollywood Reporter. It was Hollywood Reporter. Okay said that Warner Brothers was moving forward and Todd Phillips had had a meeting in October to ask for the rights to develop a portfolio of DC characters' origin stories. And that's the key thing as well, actually, I think. So before we come on to the fact that Todd Phillips has has debunked a lot of this himself, saying that it's jumped the gun, although even that, jump the gun, is an interesting choice of phrase because mm-hmm. it implies not happening yet, not not happening at all. So I don't think, from the sound of this, we are talking about another film with Joaquin Phoenix that will pick up immediately after the end of Joker. Because even Todd Phillips has got to see how bad an idea that is. <laughs> um, but what we could get is a film where the Penguin dances to Lost Profits, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, they could if they wanted, right? They could bring back Joaquin Phoenix and do a Harley Quinn movie. If not for the fact they had a Harley Quinn movie. I mean, it would be already. really bold to cast Joaquin Phoenix as, as Harley Quinn, but I mean, I, I, he's a good actor. <laughs> I, I think he can pull it off. Well, genuinely, if you want to do a Harley Quinn origin movie in the style of, you know, the 1970s sort of pastiche they had going on in Joker, you could bring back Joaquin Phoenix for that. If you wanted to. Mm. I'm not saying it's a good idea. I'm just saying you could. Or or if you're building your Gotham, uh, you know, to have him around rather than being the centre of it. Although, yeah. as I say, I, st- I still think, I mean, you know, I'm not going to go over Joker, the film itself, but I do think genuinely that if there's stuff you're going to take positively out of that film about him and, and that portrayal and that character, I do feel like a lot of it is undone if you see anything of him after it. I just, I I feel like you don't need to see him as just the Joker being the Joker. I think, you know, I do think that undercuts what that film might have been doing interestingly, but you know, when has that ever stopped anybody? But yeah, so I mean <laughs> I mean what what other than potentially a Harley Quinn, I mean what what do you think about the prospect of doing more films like Joker? Again, putting aside issues with Joker itself in principle the idea of doing these kind of genre and and period set standalone films about characters and we may not even be talking about just batman villains here we could be talking about other dc characters generally just doing these origins is this a could you know could this be dc's new route like doing just like standalone origin stories i guess it could work yeah i i would hope that they are better than uh, joker um um, but yeah, I guess it could work. I, mean, I think I, I'm, I guess I'm coming around and accepting the fact that DC are going to be very different from Marvel in what they are doing. I still, for me, knowing how great it could have been, I still do find myself lamenting the fact that the interconnected DC universe was such a dismal failure that they've had to scrap and, you know, do things as differently as they've done it. And everything is just so, separate from each other aquaman is separate from one woman is separate from joker stuff separate from birds of prey and you know part of me is like thinking what what's the plan here uh for dc and warner Bros. and when especially when you compare it to what marvel are doing it's just a shame that it's not as connected as it could be that being said different is good especially when the you know, marvel who are the biggest thing in movies right now are as big as they are and you know, if the right personnel is behind particular projects, I could see it working. There you go. James? <laughs> um, yeah, so in principle, sure, it could work. I sort of think doing Batman villains without Batman is kind of a waste of everyone's time. Cause... I mean, especially seeing as we had like five seasons of it on the telly. Yeah. Already. God, that show was bad. <laughs> um, five, six, how many? Something like that. Six, wow. I know five. <laughs> I can I can see, like, when it came to Joker, I agree with you, because I think it's hard to do a character like Joker and have a, have a character like Joker and have it be all Joker all the time for two hours. But mm. with other Batman villains, because Batman is such the sort of the antithesis to Joker, having those two characters going at, going at each other is immediately more interesting than just one or the other. When... When it comes to other Batman villains, I don't think there's that as much. I don't think that's as much of an issue. Yeah, you could you could potentially do like a Mister Freeze movie right. or a Riddler movie because those characters have mm. their own story. Like, sort of the point of Joker is that he his story is sort of pointless 
and irrelevant anyway. I mean, I do sort of think a lot of the Batman villains in different ways from Joker are defined by being in direct opposition to Batman. I mean, maybe not so much Mr. Freeze, but you mentioned Riddler. I mean, what's the point of having Riddler if you haven't got the world's greatest detective solving his riddles? Yeah, true. Um, You know, Penguin is a crime lord and Batman is the guy who punches crime in the face. So, you know, it's sort of like... <laughs> Batman a lot hates of, penguins. So. Uh, yeah. I mean, I could see someone trying to do a, a Ra's al Ghul on his own. You know, that that's something that I could maybe see. Uh, that That's a character because he has a setup around him, and crucially, he's not in Gotham. And again, it's like, I'm just bored of seeing Gotham without Batman in it. The, the point of Batman of Gotham is that it has Batman in it. It's, it's defined by Batman, and it's fundamentally not interesting without Batman in it. And, and Gotham Central, the comic, got that right in that that was a Batman comic that wasn't about Batman, but the presence of Batman in the background was completely an undercurrent of that series and one of the many reasons why it worked so well. Uh, it's an amazing comic. Everybody should read it. I reread it recently. That's why I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's on my it's mind. It's a fantastic comic. Uh, I love that one. But I mean, apart from that, and again, you know, that, that and that does have like the Batman villains in it and stuff. I do just think, I don't know why, I don't know what people think is intrinsically interesting about doing these villains without the character that they are so built around. I'd, I'd rather see them do something different and again maybe that might be you know we're we're making assumptions based on joker that what's being talked about here are batman villain films when it could just easily be you know a a blue beetle origin movie or an animal man movie and and that's what i mean about that that's what i'd rather see done i'd rather see characters that we haven't had multiple interpretations of already i know that those characters are more of a punt you know everyone knows who the joker is everyone has a version of the joker that sticks in their memory and so when you say it's interesting doing a film about the joker sorry go on well i was gonna say you say like the strength of the joker is that people love all these different versions i can't remember if i said this on the podcast but i've told everyone i've met (laughs) about it but my sort of ideal situation for a sequel is that they take you know the same crew the same cast same writer-director or whatever, and do a completely different Joker origin story. And just do a string of, like, different Joker origins and say, like, hey, here's this <laughs> version of the Joker. Here's a different version of the Joker. Like, there's no definitive Joker. There's just lots of good Jokers. And, and so you, you have the same crew do it. So basically Todd Phillips is forced to just keep making Joker movies forever. It, uh, what you're saying is that <laughs> is his crime and it is also his punishment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just want to backtrack for a second. You said that everyone loves... You know all these different versions of the Joker. I'm I'm yet to meet a person in my life who's told me that they loved Jared Leto's version of the Joker. Um, <laughs> well, I don't fair. know. You see, I said everyone has a version of the Joker that they like. I didn't say anyone's version <laughs> was Jared Leto. But I think I do. I think genuinely, if you went to anybody who who watches movies, like, do you think that any of Jack Nicholson, Heath Ledger? Caesar Romero or Joaquin Phoenix made a good villain as the Joker, and I think most people would say yes. yes. You know that 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 they think that that is a, a good villain character that has been portrayed well by at least one of those. So this is actually, I kind of like the sort of accidental situation we've got at the moment where no one has played the Joker in two movies. <laughs> I kind yeah. I like the idea that maybe you just recast the Joker every time as well. Well, I mean. Uh, Asterix, Mark, Mark Hamill has played him in several animated movies, and Mark Hamill was still my yeah, favorite yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. of all time, and Kevin Convoy is still my favorite Batman of all time. But Get Mark Hamill to play a live-action version of him. <laughs> That's what we need. Well, like, TV versions have, have 
appeared multiple times and you know animated versions have appeared multiple times but fundamentally like cinematic jokers we only yeah. had one per film well mark hamill should still be included in the cinematic conversation because mask of the phantasm did come out in the <laughs> cinema yeah but was it cinema though <laughs> it, was in a, it was in a cinema but it wasn't cinema oh boy everyone already forgets about zach galifianakis as well um because he wasn't very good that that the joker was the worst thing about that film <laughs> so you've forgotten him already <laughs> um yeah so there there may or may not be a sequel to joker a direct sequel to joker would be a bad idea but some more films doing what joker did but maybe without some of the bad things about joker could be a good idea well summed up good We've not that one on the head. Right, there you go, Warner Brothers. There's, there's your answer. Um, <laughs> Give us our kids back. <laughs> um, sticking with DC and something that I'm a little bit excited about. I mean, anyway, this is a film that already I would have been quite looking forward to. But Black Adam, uh, another DC villain movie, but I think one that people generally have, you know, a bit more of a kind of pre-existing interest in uh this long gestating Dwayne Johnson Black Adam film. Um I don't know about anybody else but I I'm more looking forward to it in the wake of Shazam because Shazam was great and I actually after a rewatch I think Shazam is the best DC. What? I think it's what? Wow. I do. I re- I really really like that film. And so I'm looking forward to a film that is, if not obviously, again, a direct sequel to it, is certainly part of that same world and and the concept has been sort of hinted at and introduced. And Dwayne Johnson has said that while Shazam isn't going to be in the Black Adam film, they're looking at going back to tell the story of Black Adam in an earlier time frame. And he has actually said that we will introduce you to the world of the JSA, the Justice Society of America. <laughs> so the JSA predate the Justice League. They're actually the first ever superhero team in comics. I think I'll have referenced them to some extent on this podcast before because one of their members was Starman. But they were basically, they they were actually, what was weird was at the time in the 40s, DC were actually two different companies. They were uh, all American comics and national comics, I think was the split. It's, it gets really confusing to try and work out which was which at, at various times. And so All-Star Comics was actually a crossover between the the characters of those two companies. But you had uh, you had the Sandman, you had Doctor Fate, you had the original Flash, Jay Garrett, you had the original Green Lantern, Alan Scott, uh, you had the Spectre, you had Starman, you had the Atom, you had Hawkman. I think think they were the original lineup. Our Man was probably in there as well, and then various other characters joined them over the next few years. Wonder Woman was in there uh, as the forties went on as well. She wasn't allowed to be in you know the first uh, appearance because she was a woman, but they they got there eventually. But yeah, so they they were the the DC's golden age superhero team. Then obviously comics went away in the 50s, uh, sorry, in the late 40s, came back in the 50s with the Silver Age. The Justice League got created to cover the heroes that that existed then. And the Justice Society became the Heroes of Earth 2, which was the, you know, where DC established that the Golden Age heroes had lived until Crisis on Infinite Earths merged the Earths together. And then so the the JSA had existed in the past of the DC universe, but still a lot of them still existed up to the 1980s and 90s because of various like de-aging spells and stuff like that. So you then ended up with Jeff Johns, uh, who again, we've talked about a fair amount on this podcast, DC honcho and producer and writer, writing a JSA series alongside David Goya, the writer of the film (laughs) that we're going to talk about on this very episode. I was about to say, what's any of this got to do with Dwayne Johnson, sorry? So, because he because he said this film's going to be about it's going to have the JSA in it. I'm explaining who the JSA are. Super so the team, is, super team from the 1940s. 
<laughs> Let's go. Yes. And Black Adam joined them in their modern incarnation in the Jeff Johns and David Goya series is where I was getting to, like literally in the next sentence. Which brings us up to 2005. Now. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so Black Adam wasn't originally in the JSA because he he wasn't a DC character back then, but he became one later on and it's entirely feasible that you could have Black Adam in like the 1940s running up against the JSA. I'm excited about this because we haven't had these Golden Age characters on film before and this would be a really good way of introducing them. I'm excited about it because I think Black Adam's going to be really good because it's Dwayne Johnson and it's a, it's an offshoot of Shazam and he's perfect for playing that character and I think this is all fun and it might mean that we get Starman in a movie and that's why I'm <laughs> excited about it. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm excited to see Dwayne Johnson playing uh, Black Adam because Black Adam's, Adam's a great character who I like more than Shazam. Yeah. Yeah. I I am excited. Um but you know, I when it comes to DC stuff, I'm I'm tempering my excitement until I actually see something tangible. Because <laughs> until you actually yeah. see <laughs> Because I have made this mistake before with DC films and I said to myself never again because I'm not sure if I've told the story before, Batman v Superman in twenty sixteen. I was very excited for that movie and you know, the trailers were working for me. To the point where January 2016, I was making a top 10 films I'm one most excited about this year. And it was neck and neck with Civil War. And I genuinely didn't know which was number one and which was number two. To the point where, guys, I booked tickets, public tickets to see it with my friends way in advance, you know, before sort of, you know, I watched it, uh, the press screening. I ended up watching it because I, I won like a Twitter competition. So I went to the premiere. Then the following night, I went to the press screening. Then the following night was watching it with my friends. And obviously, <laughs> I didn't like Batman v Superman. I really didn't like Batman v Superman. So, <laughs> you know, the, watching it three times in a week ended up being not such a good look. <laughs> so, you know, and you know, well, all the stuff which I've been hearing, the trailers... The, the the costumes looking great, you know, Batman and Superman on, on screen for the first time. All that stuff is really good. So even with, you know, the really good castings for the Batman that, that I like, I, I'm not allowing myself to get fully excited as I would with the Marvel thing um, because I need mm. to see more in order to sort of, you know, fully get to the, you know, okay, I'm fully in now. Give me this movie. Uh, so... I think that's probably smart, yeah. You know, everything which I'm hearing about Shazam and Black Adam and JSA, all of that sounds cool. And Seb, what you're saying it make, makes me, would, would make older Mon very excited. But new, experienced, mature Mon <laughs> is like, okay, that sounds cool. Let me see more. So what you're saying is you have you have to have a bit of cynicism to get that. <laughs> exactly. Right. Understood. <laughs> Make a note of that. Be more cynical about that's DC the way. movies. <laughs> all those people who are like, See the film before you judge it. In a way, they're right. <laughs> they have a point. It's true. Yeah. I mean, they are, but I mean, our entire business is judging films before we've seen them. So you, you, we can't actually say that out loud, <laughs> you know, And un- unless you do what Joe did, which is quit the podcast and then spend all your time telling us that we need to see things before we judge them. It all makes sense now. That's why he did it. <laughs> Yeah, so, well, no, I just, it was a nice tidbit of news. I think it's interesting if they're looking to do that and to look to history. I think it's also, my my big kind of prediction for this now is that Wonder Woman will be in the Black Adam film. Ooh, see. Um, Ooh, 1940s, yeah, good. She's around then, so it totally makes sense. So you do think that it's still connected, 
then in that regard because i'm taking because she, yeah because shazam is in is in the dceu because superman and batman are referenced and seen yeah. while well, superman is seen in it in that costume so i mean i know we're never going to see that version of superman again but but yeah Sh- shazam is firmly in that universe Tell Henry Cavill that he does not believe you. Oh well, yeah, I mean, he, he was saying wasn't recently, saying. wasn't he? He was like, oh, was he? "I'm still the, I'm still the incumbent Superman." And it was like, uh, "Eurasian might be telling <laughs> me that." But... <laughs> uh, no, well, look, look, you know, and I will put this on record that I have no issue with Henry Cavill returning to play Superman in in DC movies. Henry Cavill is not the problem. So you know, if if they manage to find a way to to make Superman work, and apparently they're struggling with that because you know it's apparently really difficult to make Superman good. Let's move on to that, shall we? Uh, yeah, let's. Well, I was tell you what. Can I can I just do one little tidbit of news that sort of relates to this? And I was going to use it as my pretext for talking yeah, about it. <laughs> uh, actually, it's not really it's not really news, but I was I was just going to use it as an excuse to go. Uh, hey, does anyone remember that there was meant to be a Star Girl TV series? What's up with that? And so I went and found out what was up with that. Does anyone remember? I really didn't. <laughs> well, I well. Does anyone not remember my 20 minute segment explaining the history <laughs> oh, that, of Star Wars? <laughs> uh, blanked it out of your memory. Anyway, I wondered where it was up to because, like, it's been ages since they were supposedly making it. And apparently, it's due in the second quarter of 2020 and it is going to air on the CW after it goes on DC Universe. And apparently, Stargirl might be appearing in Crisis on Infinite Earths. So I'm still looking forward to that because of the fact that i'm obsessed with starman but you know maybe we might get we might we might actually end up in the next couple of years having multiple versions of starman there's a starman waiting in the sky had to be done (laughs) (laughs) yeah they will i'm sure anyway okay let's 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 briefly touch on the fact that apparently yes dc are trying to figure out well warners and dc are trying to figure out what the hell to do with superman because they can't find anyone who has a good take on him do you think that's the reason? I think the reason might be they can't find anyone who can fuck it up more than they, <laughs> like the previous people have. Are they like, well, give us your absolutely honking Superman take. Like, tell us the worst fucking Superman idea you've got and we'll do it. And everyone's just like, we can't, we can't beat what you've done, man. <laughs> did you see uh, Jerry Conway's tweet about I this? did not. Go on. Let me just let me just find it so I can find the exact wording. But Jerry Conway said something about this that had never occurred to me before. But it suddenly made all kinds of sense as to why studios might be finding it hard to get Superman right. Oh, Amon, I've just seen uh, Jerry Conway saying, I wish Titans wasn't such a super So show. bad. <laughs> Almost a textbook on how not to write a superhero. You have, on, 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 have you guys watched any of it? No. I'd say, um, Some uh, of season one. I meant to hop onto season two because people said it was good. It's but... not. I, like, I got suckered. I got suckered because people tell me, oh, that's true. <laughs> oh, oh, Dick Grayson, man. Oh my god! The stuff that oh my, it's such a bad show. It's a bad <laughs> show. It it's the worst depiction of really great characters. Every single one of them is like this. It's like the worst. Jason Todd. If there's ever a character I wanted to reach into my screen and pummel, it's Jason freaking Todd. <laughs> I mean, Titans. To be fair, that is entirely accurate depiction of Jason Todd. Then, because <laughs> he was like the absolute worst Robin. <laughs> It's just, oh, every time he's on screen, I just, my, my eyes roll. Oh, yeah, no version show. no version of Robin on screen has been better than the Teen Titans Go version, who is, is hilarious true. and extremely complicated. He's an amazing character. Yeah. yeah. BAFTA winning Teen Titans Go. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. On a kid's BAFTA last night. <laughs> uh, 
Okay, so I found the tweet. So Jerry Conway says, Here's why no modern movie studio can get Superman right. The people who rise to the top in a movie studio have life experiences and temperaments that fundamentally prevent them from seeing the world through Superman's eyes. The career criteria that produces a successful studio executive require a cynical approach to creativity and an an ability to manipulate other people in order to climb the rungs of a corporate management ladder. Superman as a character was the creative product of oppression and disenfranchisement. He was the wish fulfillment of the American dream, a champion of the oppressed, a symbol of optimism against all odds. Corporate studio execs rarely come from disenfranchised groups, usually get their jobs through social networks unavailable to outsiders and remain disconnected from real people. Obviously there are exceptions to this, but it's more typical than it should be. Of course they don't know what to do with Superman. That's why they gave the producing rights to John Peters for 20 years. That's why they hired Zack Snyder. How could anyone who saw Sucker Punch say, that's the guy to redefine America's Boy Scout hero? (laughs) The only reason Superman the movie turned out to be a classic is because the studio gave the property away and the Salkins looked out by hiring Richard Donner. Pure luck. I don't disagree with any of that. I was going to say, that's a pretty good (laughs) take from Jerry Conway. I mean, I was, I was only, I would only add to that that the line that you know they don't know how to make Superman relevant from other audiences. That kind of thinking comes from thinking that the only sort of, you know, two sort of things you need to think about are whether a movie is too dark and too light. Because I look at Superman Returns and you know the response to that, and then you know they did like a major course correction and went in the entire other direction, and you no know, audiences didn't respond to that. Which is probably what's led them to thinking, well, if they don't respond to the light or the dark, then, you know, what's going on? You know, how mm-hmm. can we make... And again, that, that type of thing, it just irritates me. And as I was saying before this podcast began, Superman is an immigrant who has an arch nemesis. He's a billionaire who became president. You're telling me that you can't make that relevant in 2019. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with you? And, you know, there's so many comics and animated shows which get the characters so right really what i'm saying is warner brothers executives need to listen to this podcast called cinematic universe i've heard it's really good they can get a lot of recommendations about <laughs> how to take superman in the right direction because it's, it's right there for them even after everything they've done to ruin these characters superman, superman and batman they are still the biggest superheroes in the world if you make one if you make one good movie for either of them that gets the character right. You're right back in the conversation with, you know, Marvel. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure the box office will reflect that because people still love these characters. That the People are vying, vying. I know I am for a film which gets these characters right. It can, it can be done. And if they, again, if they have the right personnel behind these projects, I'm sure that they can do it well. And I know, I've, I've, I, I, I've said this before, if I was a Warner Brothers executive, anybody who's making a Superman film or a Batman film, I'd sit them down, I'd just play the Justice League animated show on the <laughs> Pete, and then I'd demand they give me, like, you know, detailed notes on why this show works, and just take those notes and transpose it to the big screen because the Justice League animated show is the gold standard for me for super animation. I think it's the greatest superhero cartoon of all time. And I know that obviously animation is different from live action, but I'm just talking about the character work. Can you imagine if we got the character, the, 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 the relationship that Superman and Batman have in that animated sort of universe and put that on the big screen? People would go nuts for it. It can be done. Um, so I'm hoping, you know, within the next decade or so, obviously it hasn't been a good uh, decade on, on screen for uh, either of those characters, but in the next decade or so, they can get that right. If they can get that right, then, you know, among other things, I'll be a happy man. And who doesn't want to see that? <laughs> the thing that I find odd is that they're, they're talking about how do we make Superman relevant? And it's like, 
do you ever do people sit around going how do we make sherlock holmes relevant you don't need to make him relevant it's like the great it's one of the greatest fictional characters of all yeah. time he's yep. been popular for close to a century just do the character yeah, you take the inherent characteristics of that character that everyone knows because they are they are so clearly defined and everyone understands them, and you put that character in either, well, in Sherlock Holmes' case, either in a contemporary environment or a past environment. But yeah, the point is, is that you know both Sherlock and Elementary didn't sit there going, how do we make this character relevant? They said, let's take that character and keep the character as the, he intrinsically is in, in those original stories and do some stories around him that happen to be set now. It's really not that difficult. It shouldn't be that difficult to get Superman right. What I was going to ask was, do, do you think that getting that right potentially involves having Michael B. Jordan play him? Because that's what's been quite heavily talked about, the possibility <laughs> that Michael B. Jordan... Be I'm, a, I'm a massive Michael B. Jordan fan. I think he's fantastic. I don't think we're at the point yet. Not that we're not ready for a Black Superman, but I don't think we need to go that route yet. Because, you know, Henry Cavill has been sort of, you know, as, as, we, as we've been saying, you know, he, he still thinks that, you know, he's Superman or whatever. And... You know, as much as, you know, his version of the character has had issues, none of which are his fault. Mm. The end of Justice League did put, leave the character in a much better place than he had been previously. So I could see that version of Superman going on and having a good solo film, uh, a, a good solo outing. I think you can still do stuff with that. And if, you, if, if that option is still viable, you have to explore it. Um, mm. I just hope that the person writing the character uh, gets it right. Um, because I've always said that you know, Henry Cavill, if the writing is there, I'm sure that he can play a really good Superman and a really good Clark Kent. Unfortunately, it just hasn't been there for him as of yet. So I would, you know, for now, let's, let's explore that route. Not to say that, you know, not even sort of in the too distant future, you know, a black Superman wouldn't be a cool thing to see. But... I still think the Henry Cavill option is viable and then it should be explored. Mm. And what what do you think about the possibility of it being J.J. Abrams being the man to, to guide Superman? Jesus uh, I don't know, Christ. I don't know how familiar <laughs> people are with what... I, I, I was waiting for James's reaction to that. <laughs> the biggest J.J. Abrams fan in the world. There's going to be a lot of lens flares in the new Superman movie. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think if it was J.J. Abrams, like without knowing anything about what J.J. Abrams wanted to do with Superman 15 years or so ago. I think I think the thing you can say about J.J. Abrams is that he's got he's not got a consistently good or bad track record. So you could get something great out of him or you could get something not so great out of him. And what you're saying is you could get Star Trek and you could get Star Trek Into Darkness. Exactly, yeah. Um, but, I mean, now I'm not saying that J.J. Abrams would necessarily want to do exactly what he was going to do with Superman Flyby, but what he was going to do with Superman Flyby was have a Superman trilogy where Krypton doesn't explode, Lex Luthor is secretly a Kryptonian, and at the end of the first film, Superman goes to Krypton, and then the second film is set on Krypton. And I don't really think that that shows that someone has understood what makes Superman tick in terms of... <laughs> you know, telling a good Superman story that's about Superman. <laughs> In terms of completely junking every recognisable element of the character. Yeah. Because <laughs> unsur unsurprisingly, given that this was the 2000s, the, the trilogy centred on Kal-El, this is quoting from a Den of Geek article, as an heir to the throne of Krypton with a mysterious prophecy he must fulfil. 
I'm I'm betting there was some magic blood in there somewhere as well. That's more of a, that's more of an early 2010s idea, isn't it? But I will say this: I read a thread and I tweeted about it um a few days ago. It wasn't even a thread; it was, it was a tweet by a writer who I really liked called Joelle Monique, and she posited that Michael B. Jordan should not play Superman. Michael B. Jordan should play Lex Luthor. I was thinking not dissimilar, actually, yeah. Let me get the tweet up because it's really, really good. Let Michael B. Jordan be Lex and analyse the power structure with a wealthy black man suspicious of the intentions of a white superpowered being. Tell it from mm. Lex's perspective. Now, I want to see that movie. I think that could yeah. be very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I do worry that makes Lex Luthor the sympathetic character. <laughs> well, I know what you mean, but I do think I think I think Lex Luthor is at his best when he kind of slightly has a point. Like he still he still has to be the villain. He still has to be ultimately wrong and he still has to let his petty jealousy of Superman be the thing that undoes him. But I like a version of Lex Luthor where if he channeled what was like good about him, like his intelligence and all of that, into positivity, he would be Superman's best friend. But he doesn't because he's flawed and petty, so he goes the other way instead. And I think that's a. And again, it's like it's it's uh, you know, while a completely different sort of dynamic, you can draw a parallel with the type of character that Michael B. Jordan played so well in Black Panther, which is this guy is the villain. But there's a version of this story where he's not the villain. Yeah, that could be very, very interesting. Which means, I mean, I, I, I doubt that we're going to see anything like that in the future. No. And if you're sticking with the thing is, if you're sticking with Cavill, Cavill you can't you recast with Lex Luthor again. Jar of piss. Oh god. <laughs> Isn't the version awesome. of Black Panther where Killmonger's not a villain is just Black Panther, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, bold, bold words from somebody who works for a museum. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so the the long and short of it is nobody really knows what's going to happen with Superman. Just that they <laughs> just that they're tonight. determined for it to be bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've we've actually managed to spend quite a long time talking about DC stuff, which is I was worried we didn't really have enough things to cover. Um, we'll just quickly touch on a couple of other things. Um, that like at the time that we're recording this, there is supposed to be a Black Widow trailer coming out the evening that we're recording this, and I think imminently there's also possibly a Wonder Woman 1984 trailer. So if they land in between us recording this and releasing, know that we are going to cover them. But this is just what always happens on this podcast. There was a bit of news that we missed previously, which was that um, Peyton Reed is confirmed as doing Ant-Man 3, which is nice. Yeah, it would be nice to see someone actually get to complete a trilogy for Marvel. Yeah, I mean, you've got to assume it's not going to be called Ant-Man 3. It's going to be called Ant-Man and the Wasp 2, right? Going to be called... (laughs) It's going to be called, like, Ant-Man and Daughter or something. Ant-Man and (laughs) Ant-Girl, something like that. I've got to say... It's a rare day when I'm not excited about MCU news, but the day when Ant-Man 3 was announced, it did absolutely nothing for me. Oh, really? Which is not to say, which is not to say that I dislike those movies, but I never find myself thinking, you know what I'm in the mood for? Ant-Man. It's never, it's never happened. It's never going to happen. I think Ant-Man uh, and now The Wasp are much better in non-Ant-Man movies, so I'm hoping Ant-Man 3 is the one to... Uh, break the streak and when it comes out on blue i'd be like you know what i really want no i really want to watch ant-man 3 let's do that i i i think ant-man's one of the ones that like if it's over christmas and it shows up on the telly 
I'd sit and watch and enjoy it. I mean, I'd, I, you know, I'd enjoy most of them. They're, they're, they're good films. But Ant-Man feels to me like a, it shows up and you're like, oh, and you watch it and go, oh, I like that. It, yeah, that, that's kind of where it feels like it sits for me. Yeah. Um, but equally, I kind of know what you mean about the news is not exactly because it's the same director who's done the first two. It's a character who's popular, who we knew probably would get a sequel at some point. So it doesn't feel like big news in that sense. I wonder if Ant-Man is a film that you like more if you're a parent. Because huh. a lot of the, the sort of MCU characters kind of don't have families, or at least their families are sort of... They have daddy issues or whatever, because, you know, superheroes. But it's rare for them to have children. And when I was re-watching Endgame, like, one of the moments in Endgame that never fails to land for me is when he goes back to meet uh, Cassie. Yeah. Oh, that's a great moment. Like, yeah. But this- but this is what I'm saying. All my favorite Ant-Man moments are non-Ant-Man movies. Oh yeah, but that's true of, of Spider-Man for in the MCU as well. It's just that's how good the Avengers movies are. <laughs> like all my all my favorite Spider-Man movies are basically in <laughs> Avengers Endgame or Infinity War. Sorry, that's true. He's great in those movies. But then that that makes me want to see more. And like, it's Paul Rudd. Come on, you watch anything with Paul Rudd in? <laughs> it's true. It's true. Guy doesn't age. <laughs> Paul, if you listen to this, I like some of the vampire juice you are clearly sipping. <laughs> and Man 3 is going to come out. Paul Rudd's going to look identical. We're going to be like haggard and wrinkled. <laughs> yeah. Well, since you mentioned vampires, I'm on. Shall we take that as a fantastic segue opportunity to start talking about our feature presentation? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, so we are going to listen to a trailer and then we will be back to discuss Guillermo del Toro and David Goyer's and Wesley Snipes's. Blade 2. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's a world beyond the one we know, where the powers of darkness fear nothing but one man. Stop! Blade. We represent the ruling body of the Vampire Nation. They're offering you a truce. They want to meet with you. You sure about this? They'll take us in deeper than we've ever been. Now, those he has sworn to kill need his help to fight a new breed of terror. They're no longer top of the food chain. Our forces are ready to fight, but we need a leader. Let me get this right. You want me to hunt them for you? Ooh, so exciting. Five, four, three, two, one. Keep your friends close. Keep your enemies closer. Okay, so that was the trailer for Blade 2. Uh, before we get into discussing that film, um, so I've just, just checked and it was a little over four years ago um, that we actually covered the first film. A uh, long time ago in this podcast terms. It was in our first year. I could have sworn we'd done it more recently than that, but um, there we go. Amon, I, I gather that you're not necessarily super happy with our opinions on that first film, which is that we to be frank, weren't super positive about it. It was a sort of, can see the importance of it, can kind of see the appeal, but I think it left us, James and I, and possibly Joe as well. Uh, maybe Joe liked it more than us, I can't recall, but uh, a little cold. So start by telling us about your relationship with this film, with these films rather, your, your feelings on the first film, on the Blade films as a whole. I, I presume from the way you've talked about them that, that you feel somewhat differently from us about them. There was a whole lot of blasphemy on that podcast <laughs> which you guys you know I was, I was shaking my head so much you listen to it um because you said that you know i can't remember the exact quote but like you said like wesley snipes had no charisma and i'm like <laughs> what movie were you guys watching because he is the whole he's, he's not the whole reason but he's a massive part of why that film really really works for me um he's just so cool and you know one of the things i was going to say about both, you know, this film and Blade 2, is that it feels like Wesley Snipes, it feels like Wesley Snipes' Blade as opposed to, as opposed to Blade played by Wesley Snipes. I mean, and there's yeah. a difference. 
And, and that's, that's why that's why I said at the start and Wesley Snipes as Blade too, because you really <laughs> can see that yeah, that a lot about these films happen because Wesley Snipes wants them to be that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that has its own unique pleasures. I think with I think what what interests me with the Mahershala Ali one, um, which is uh, going to come our way in the next few years, is that it's going to be more Blade played by Mahershala Ali as opposed to Mahershala Ali's Blade. I, I'm very interested to see what that looks like. But for the purposes of this discussion, Wesley Snipes' Blade is still... There's a lot of unique pleasures that come from that. And I think that shows in both Blade and Blade 2. I think some of the set pieces, just in, just in how they're structured. I think Blade's entrance in the first Blade is one of the best to the comic book entrances of all time. Of course, we all know that, that the, the number one in that list now goes to Thor in Wakanda. I will take no <laughs> if, but some maybe's in that. Um, but, you know, Wesley Snipes' Blade is definitely top five. Uh, it's great. Uh, I also think about how it was the end of the game, that movie in uh, having a black woman sort of, you know, as almost a co-lead and she actually had stuff to do. She wasn't just like the love interest. That, you know, even sort of in uh, more recent superhero films, uh, mistakes are still made when it comes to the women characters and Blade was ahead of the game in that regard too. Um, So there's a lot to like uh, in Blade. I think Blade 2 is by far the best of the trilogy. Uh, we will not speak of Blade Trinity. Uh, that's what I'm <laughs> going to say about that. Um, but Blade 2, I think, is a really fun action movie uh the key word there is action and uh, this is first and foremost an action movie and i really love all the stuff they do in that regard we're, i'm sure we're going to get more into it as this podcast progresses but i really like that uh wesley snipes is still uh super cool and uh he gets a lot of uh badass things in this which still to this day put a smile on my face as i say that one second hold on i need to put on my sunglasses <laughs> and now i'm ready to do this podcast um but yeah i i really enjoyed uh blade 2 i also think you know this is a film where because we weren't at the point where studios wanted to really closely adhere to the comic books this allowed Guillermo del toro who directed this to make it fully his own and you know one of the things we say about today's comic book movies is that uh, or, or at least one of the one of the things that critics say about the Marvel movies is that you know they come up with an assembly line and there's no personality, there's no none of the director's vision in in them. Um, this is Guillermo del Toro's vision through and through, for better yeah, or worse. Um, and you know, for me, there's more better associated with the worse. I'm getting the sense that you might feel differently, but we'll see. But yeah, I I really dug that aspect of it too. Um, so. I feel like I've been rambling for a while, but you you, you get my idea. I think I I really like Blade 2. I look forward to talking about it in more detail. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's interesting where this falls actually in Del Toro's career. And I'd actually, before before sitting down to watch it, I'd actually forgotten that this was Del Toro and, and, you know, that Stephen Norrington didn't come back for the second film. Uh, I was in no doubt fairly early on that this was a Guillermo del Toro film uh <laughs> people will generally know that I'm fairly squeamish um and uh, <laughs> fairly <this is> a... <laughs> extremely I was gonna uh, say embarrassingly I think is the word <laughs> embarrassingly squeamish uh yeah this is a this is a gory ass film uh I did not expect all of the the monstery stuff in this you know this what they've basically done with Blade 2 is they've invented a new form of vampire 
purely so that the vampires can be horrific monsters rather than just being like cool people who bite your neck. <laughs> um, but let's, I, I think, I think the whole thing with this being a death horror film is quite interesting because you know it's a it's a sequel. You had the first film, which has I think confounded like everybody's expectations by making a hundred plus million for this, you know, little heard of Marvel Comics character by a director that wasn't particularly well known, a writer that wasn't particularly well known at that time. It pretty much entirely hinges on Wesley Snipes to sell it and and he did so successfully. It's I, I think I can't remember again, because it was like four years ago, how much we talked at the time about how much or how little these films owe to the comics. Uh, I mean the answer is basically nothing yeah in fact the comics changed quite a lot about blade to make him more yes. like the movie version because they were just like well that's the successful version of blade so let's do that i mean blade had never really had a successful incarnation his 1970s Ooh, version i'm not sure i need to double check exactly when i saw it but i think my first interaction with blade was actually in spider-man the animated series oh absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. oh true yes yeah yeah when he teams up with spider-man uh, to stop Morbius. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was my first interaction with him. He had a really cool bike. Uh, he said, "I'm." A, <laughs> oddly enough, the line that sticks out to him from that is uh, at the end of one episode, he says, "Saddle up, wall crawler. It's gonna be a long night." I remember that very distinctly. Um, maybe well, once once Disney Plus you know comes to the UK, I'll search for it. Uh, maybe they'll, maybe they'll have that. Did he have? Can you remember? Did he have a British accent or was he American? In it's very American. He's it very, very American. American. Yeah. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about that, actually, just to come to that, is because again, I don't think we talked about this on on the first podcast. Because as I say, there's there's very little about these films, just even in terms of characters that come from the comics. Um, I think the first film has got Deacon Frost, albeit in a very different version. Deacon Frost is from the comics. That's about it. Because you would think from the films that Whistler is an integral part of Blade from the comics. He's not. He was created by David Goyer. Apparently, but he first appeared in the Spider-Man animated series four years before the first film came out, and I I can only assume that that's because this film was in development from the early '90s, and so the character must have been created in a version of the film script and then got used in the Spider-Man cartoon before they got around to making the film with him in. But yeah, that's the the, the interesting thing about that cartoon appearance is that that cartoon is the first appearance of Whistler. But I think that cartoon, you know, before that, as I say, you know, he'd been he was he was one of the more notable features of Marvel's brief flirtation in the 70s with horror comics but very little of that stuff actually stuck around so kind of by the kind of late 80s early 90s you know he wasn't a character that anyone would have recalled but you know that ended up being for the positive because it meant that the films could define a version and everybody well, I say everybody you know every, everybody who pays attention to this kind of stuff can tell you what the character of Blade is meant to be like in inverted commas and that meant to be like is wesley snipes version sunglasses black leather coat swords doesn't speak much but when he does it's a it's a a, 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 a slick quip you know there's so many great quips in this movie oh <laughs> there are, my gosh. There are, there, i mean there are some there are also lines like the one from ron perlman that i quoted at the start of the episode which are uh, I mean, and also David Goya loves to get a C word in an in an unusual sense. I noticed that. Film, I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, it's a David Goya film, isn't it?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I love I love the relationship between Von Perlman's character and, and Blade in this, and it's, it's a part of it. I'm, a part of a part of me is a little bit frustrated that we didn't get more of it because um, not only is sort of you know 
Reinhardt just you know hates Blade, but Reinhardt is a racist in this, mm. and they don't do anything with that. Um, no, they, 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 that, that one initial scene, which is great, uh, where uh, Blade just, you know, suns him and puts an explosive device in the back of his head and all that sort of stuff. But they don't really do anything else with that, which is, which is a shame. Um, cause mm. I think, I think that was an interesting way to go. And that's, that's, good. that's actually a recurring theme of a lot of my sort of criticisms with this movie, because there's some good stuff here, but I just needed more. I needed more of the romance subplot with Nyssa. I needed more of, the relationship between the villain Nomak and Blade. I think that's very interesting in that they don't hate each other, but it's when it comes to like, you know, the final few minutes, both of them need to do what they need to do, um, you know, to sort of hold up, you know, that well, well Nomak just wants to survive and Blade needs to sort of, you know, he's Blade, so he needs to save humanity, but they don't actually hate each other. I think that's interesting, but they don't do enough with it to really make it land they don't, they don't go the extra mile to make it land and have that visceral impact more. Uh, so, so for instance, when Nissa dies at the end, we don't really feel it as much as we could have because they haven't spent enough time on the relationship between, uh, Nissa and Blade. Although I'm not sure if you guys saw the link that I sent <laughs> so you. So the deleted scene you sent. Yeah. 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 Um, Seb, have you, Seb, did you watch it? Uh, I haven't actually, no. <laughs> it looks like there was more of that plot in there, yeah. Oh, right. Blade is in like full post-coital dressing gown, you know, uh, attire. And he's sort of talking to Nissa. It's, it's amazing. I wish it would have stayed in. <laughs> I mean, that's that's interesting because it's, it's, it's definitely something where I, I did feel like, hang on, have we missed some beats here? Because yes. it, it feels like the film thinks there's more of a <laughs> yeah. relationship. We had missed some is. beats is um, the answer to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's, I was just going to say, because we've rattled through a lot of things there and they're all things that I want I'm to come sorry. back to. I'm but I was going to wheel us back to the, uh, you are, that's fine. The, you know, the enthusiasm to get onto this. <laughs> I just don't want you to have talked about it all before we hit the 20 yeah. minute mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I was going to just walk back quickly and just say, like, Amon is entirely right in that this is the best of the three Blade films. Yes. I also don't think it's especially great. <laughs> like, <laughs> James Hunt. I liked it a lot more than the first. I would give it that. I still got the sense that it's mainly a film about Wesley Snipes posing. He's a very good poser, in fairness. <laughs> it's not what I turn up for, though. <laughs> I think the first film is pretty. I don't think the first film really has anything going for it outside of Wesley Snipes being Wesley Snipes and defining this character. I think the film around him is really cookie cutter and just, as I say, I can remember very little about what happened in it having watched it four years ago. Um, I mean, basically the same thing. They go to a lot of nightclubs and kill vampires. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I mean, I think this one has more that defines it than just him. I still don't think it's about very much, and I still don't think the script is very good, and we'll we'll come to all of that. But I think... Uh, like Amon was saying, there's this sort of idea very briefly thrown out, like, oh yeah, this, this guy's a racist, and like you've got a film which is literally about different races fighting yeah. each other. <laughs> D maybe do something with it? I don't know. Mention it more than twice? But I, but I think what this film at least does have is it's got so just I mean to come back to what I was saying before about you know because they kind of they bring in Guillermo del Toro and the first film you know from a genre point of view I mean it's about vampires and it's a little bit bloody in places but I don't think you'd call it <laughs> uh, a horror action film this is horrory because you've got Guillermo del Toro it's del Toro yeah, before he's really 
defined, you know, his uh, aesthetic. And I think it's interesting that it's got it's got hints of Del Toro-ness while also there are other bits where it's like, yeah, I can see this is relatively early in his career. And like the only like major thing he's done before this, and certainly from an American point of view, is is Mimic. Uh this is you know, this is before Hellboy, this is before Pan's Labyrinth. Um but uh, but I think what you can see is that he has got a desire to do big, expansive, unpleasant, creepy stuff in films, and and he delivers that with the Reapers, with the look of them, with how they function, uh, and all of that stuff. So it's got that to it. Like I, you know, what I will remember about this film is this is the horrory one, in the way yeah. that the first one is. All I really remember about the first one is nightclubs. <laughs> um, and the third one is the shit one oh, with Ryan Reynolds so in it. I mean that that um, moment when so, that that first moment when the Reaper's jaw opens up and there's like a fucking yeah. mouth vagina in there, and yeah. like that's genuinely you're a bit like holy shit, like that's yeah. a lot, and that's definitely you get Guillermo del Toro from that, yeah. And I and I think the film, I think this film, and it's not just in the sense of how the Reapers have that second mouth thing coming out. There is definitely an aliensy feel going on with this in terms of trying to do with take trying to take from the first film, do a sequel that kind of expands on the concept and then puts the character in an environment where they're surrounded by this this team of of kind of you know mercenary vampires in this case soldiers in aliens but there's just they just felt to me like something about the dynamic that it sets up felt to me like they were trying to make this be the aliens of blade um and that's the other thing that i think the film does have going for it that's memorable about it is you know having done the first film where the first film is blade is a guy who fights vampires the second film is here's where blade is forced to team up with the vampires because there are worse vampires um now i do think that that premise gives the film some of its biggest script problems. Uh, the main one being that there are moments where it tries to make you sympathise with the fact that it's killing off some of these vampire baddies, but it's like, they're vampires. It's the same with the with the romance subplot. I'm just a bit like, yeah, but she's a vampire. <laughs> she's, she's, she's probably killed lots of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, uh, the, I think the investment was a problem for me because i was like well i don't care about any of these sidekicks mm. that guy's clearly a dick yeah. who's going to betray everyone whistler's acting weird and they're not really dealing with why like Amon said when when the villain dies i didn't really care didn't really know what he was doing <laughs> it's just another vampire isn't he like who gives a shit yeah it's it's got this weird thing where, obviously, the, I mean, the state. <laughs> 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 There is, there is lingering in the background. The stakes are if Blade doesn't stop both the vampires and the Reapers, a lot of people in the world are going to get eaten. That's the sort of, you know, and the vampires will take over. But the film isn't really concerned with that. It just seems to concern itself with the 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 goings on and the interpolitics between the vampires and the Reapers. And it's like, yeah, but at the end of the day, they're all the baddies so none of this really matters i also think it's really interesting that this film throws at you an entire world and setup to do with the vampires and this family and this business that they've got and this headquarters and all of this stuff none of which is present in the first film like this film to me feels like it's a sequel to a completely (laughs) different film 
it doesn't feel to me like a like a direct sequel to Blade. Other than Wesley Snipes and and Whistler, it doesn't share anything with the first film. <laughs> I would like to all. place on the table at this point the Underworld trilogy or whatever we're on now, <laughs> like five Underworld films or something. Because <laughs> I think they do similar things to this movie, but uh, you know, are uh, more aware of their own schlockiness. Like, I don't know, I, yeah. I quite like the Underworld films, and this felt like a sort of precursor to those, to be honest, with the sort of vampire politics and stuff. I like the widening of the vampire mythology, though. And mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. Yeah, like, me too, yeah. You know, I, you know look, at, look at the John Wick franchise. You know, the, the, lots of elements um, in John Wick Chapter 2 and Chapter 3 we didn't even know about in John Wick Chapter 1. But yet, those two, the, 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 that sequel, like, for me, John Wick Chapter 2 is the, was my favorite of the trilogy. Um, it really, really worked. Um, so I, I, I like all the, um, you know, vampire mythology stuff and the hierarchy and all that sort of stuff. That, that really worked for me. And speaking of John Wick, we should probably get to the action. The action sequence isn't this. Another thing, which I think are actually ahead of their time. Cause you actually, you think about Captain America and the Winter Soldier. You think about the fights in that film, they're fast, they're physical, they're bruising, and it's still very clear that, you know, there are people who are very well-trained humans, and then there's Captain America, and there's Bucky, and if you take a punch or a kick from them, you will go flying. The same thing is true for stuff with Blade. And I think the, the fights and sequences in this are really, really good. At one point, we should mention Blade suplexes a guy while staring someone right in the eye. That is very, very cool. <laughs> also, just like John Wick in that Keanu does his own stunts, you can tell Wesley does his own stuff, his own stunts too, which is really, really cool. And there's a lot of cool gadgetry in this as well. Um, he's upgraded his equipment, which I always like. Uh, so yeah, the, the action is the high point of this movie for me, and almost all of it really, really works. There's some CGI, which does feel dated, but aside from that... It really, really works, and I, I've also appreciated that the villain is is you no know, really formidable. And it takes a lot to beat him. I actually love that they that Blade tries to use the method um, that he used to off uh, Stephen Dorff in the first film on Nomak, and it doesn't work, and he has to figure out something else to to beat him. And you know, many films wouldn't sort of have beats like that. They would just you know you know conveniently forget that they used. So, such and such method to great effect, you know, two seconds ago. I'm thinking, of course, of X-Men Dark Phoenix, where Magneto, <laughs> you know, uses his powers very coolly to dispatch a whole contingent of people on the train. And yet, when he comes up against the big bad, resorts to using guns for some dumbass reason. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I, I, I enjoyed that too. Um, I always like uh, for formidable villains so that when you know, that final fight comes, you, you feel a sense of satisfaction when the villain's defeated. And at least in that regard, I felt that. I sat watching this movie thinking just, when are these action sequences going to stop? Because <laughs> they were just so, like, they felt to me artificial and no. sort of so overly stylized in, I think it might be just the sort of, they're in the sort of 90s action tradition. And I was just like... Why is he, like, standing in the middle of a room with, like, knives raised aloft waiting for someone to jump down on him? Like, uh, just having his flying, like, switchblade that he could remote control or something. It just... I just sat there going, like, what is this? 
Like, it doesn't feel practical. It doesn't feel real. It feels like a music video or some kind of interpretive dance. And I just, I could not get invested. You're, you're aware that Blade 2 is a comic book movie with vampires, James. You just said it doesn't feel real. Come on, dude. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, I would. I mean, I, I did definitely during that final fight sequence. I felt this is, this is ridiculously stylized. But I did didn't feel that that was like accidental. I think it. Oh no, I no, no. Yeah, intentionally... I, I give it full credit for committing to what it's doing. But personally, what it was doing didn't work for me. I mean, there's a bit where you know Blade like messes up the dude's arm, and then the guy rearranges his arm and hits Blade with the arm. I mean. <laughs> that's really cool <laughs> I, th- I think my biggest problem by the time it got to that fight was I had lost all sense of what side people were supposed to be on and again it really just came down to everyone is the baddie and I didn't fully understand why uh, Nisa had suddenly kind of turned and sort of teamed up with Nomak to the point of sacrificing herself to him and I was just, I was just really lost at that because there's a point slightly earlier where Nomak looks like he's effectively going to be on Blade's side, but then he's not because at the end of the day he's this Reaper who just wants to eat and kill everybody. So yeah, it was just a bit. It was like a lot of stuff towards, particularly towards the end, only really seemed to be in service of setting up sequences where people could fight each other you know <laughs> i mean that does describe a comic movie it was, it was the same with the stuff with the blood pack it was like he's on the same side as the blood pack up to a point where they decide they want the blood pack to be able to fight him and in some cases they'll have that happen a bit earlier um because you know for example you know so the, so they'll have uh ron perlman's what's ron perlman's character called reinhardt um you know sort of turn on him even though he's not supposed to um and the 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 contrived twist with oh the bomb isn't actually real i was just pretending it was but there were lots of opportunities then where he could have turned on blade and killed him and got away with it but he was still pretending that he thought the bomb was real at that point so that was a bit and then the bomb was real so <laughs> that was such a cool cool death um norman reedus <laughs> deserved to die Ooh. Deserve to die, deserve to die horribly, and that's exactly what happened. It was great. There, there's a character that you're you're happy to see get yeah. blown up for mm-hmm. sure. Basically, from the uh, start, I was like, oh, "So he's going to be a villain, right?" And as soon as they introduced the the lawyer, <laughs> and they were like, "He's got a tattoo," I was like, "Okay, so he's one of the familiars, yeah. right?" Like, <laughs> yeah. Again, they never actually explain what. Again, this is this is there's all this mythology stuff. Whereas I say, I don't think it harms the film that it's in there because I think at least what it shows is there is thought that's gone into this setup. Now a lot of it is nicked from Buffy, but nevertheless <laughs> there is thought that has gone into that world setup. But the film itself never explains it. It just assumes. I think it assumes that you've seen other stuff with vampires in, and is just like, yeah, let's just go with it. Well, vampires like super big then. I mean, this was uh, this is early two thousands, so this is this is like just after the peak of Buffy. It's pre Twilight, but you know, it's definitely in the vampire period. But then again, as I, I mean, I think this film is weird in the sense of it's about vampires, and yet it's not really because what it's decided to do is disregard almost everything about 
what you what you'd get out of doing vampire stuff because as i say for example you very rarely see any of the vampires in this film feeding on people you do see them all getting destroyed by sunlight and silver but actually this film is more about these monsters that are supposedly the evolution of vampires but they're so far removed from your classic image of how a vampire gets you that I, I, I mean, I, I think I do think that that is slightly <laughs> one of. The, I think it's one of the things that doesn't really work is that it's it's supposedly about vampires and it's not vampire enough. And Blade, the fact that Blade is half vampire is basically irrelevant to the film. My thing about this is that the Reapers, the Reapers are more like zombies than vampires because they're sort of mindless yeah. like corpses that feed sort of wantonly and turn you into one if you bite on. Like that, that is yeah. a zombie, not a vampire. And you- you don't have your original personality as one. So the one, the guy who gets turned about halfway through, when he turns, he stops being himself. Whereas as a vampire, you're you're yourself just as a vampire. Let's talk about then some about some of those supporting characters, and and not just because there's one particular actor who I need to make reference to. Um, <laughs> so you have the as I said. <laughs> You have what I described as this sort of this this aliensy setup of here's this kind of motley crew of characters, um, and I, I'd say I, I think you've potentially got the slightly interesting angle of they have to work with Blade, but th- but they've spent their lives being trained to fight him. I think it's a shame the film doesn't make more of that. And then I think what you've got is a set of characters where some of them are definitely superfluous. Um, I think there's the guy you, when you were talking before Amon about um, the the antagonism between him and Ron Perlman, and I think I think any decision that means you get less of Ron Perlman in a film is a bad decision. Um, and I I think having the character, I think his name is Chupa. His name Vine. Um, uh, Ron Perlman was playing a character called Reinhardt. Yeah, so Ron Perlman is Reinhardt, and then there's a character who's, who's played by an actor called Matt Schultz, and he's called Chupa, yeah. and he sits in almost exactly the same position as Reinhardt in terms of being the one who's a douche, basically. (laughs) And you get all of these moments that he has, and it's like, well, they could have actually just been... You could have had more Ron Perlman. Mm -hmm. He's the the one who gets the C-word line. Uh, I'm just saying that's what I have to believe Mm -hmm. it. Um, You know, and it's like all of that stuff could have been Ron Perlman. You've then got, got the two who are the couple... Um, who basically exists so that one of them can get bitten. And again, that's where I felt like the film was going, oh, look, you're supposed to have a bit of sympathy for these vampires who go around killing people. But, the, you know, their, their roles were basically just to to have that moment, effectively. Mm. Um, you've got Assad, who... Uh, Danny John Jules. I don't, I don't know what else anyone might have seen him in before. Um, <laughs> I was going to make a joke, and now I can't remember what the thing's called. Murder in Paradise, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> Death, Death in Paradise. Paradise. There we go. Yeah, yeah. He was also in, he was in Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> um, those those are the only famous things that he's been. in But no, that that was weird, especially because I knew he was in this film, but I didn't know what character he was going to be playing. So when him and Nisa turn up and they they've got their ninja masks on and they're they're sneaking around and they start talking, and because Danny John Jules is doing a posh English accent in this film because he's meant to be the kind of dapper, well spoken one. And then he takes off his mask and it's Danny John Jules. And I'm like, oh, you, you've been in this film for a few minutes and I didn't even realise you were there. <laughs> Do you think they picked him on the basis of his ability to talk with fangs in? <laughs> Almost definitely. I'm, sh- I'm sure at the time that this came out, there was some kind of reference made to the fact that, um, especially because Danny John Jules has said in interviews in the past that when he gets people who like recognise that he's off the telly, but they haven't actually watched 
what he's in, they're like, "Oh, you're in that that thing, aren't you? And you're, you're you play that vampire, right? Don't you, you play that, that, that Dracula guy?" <laughs> no, I I completely. Um... It's it's a shame because you know you're you're right in that we it would have been good to have seen more of Ron Palman's character because he's so great. And the and mm. the shame thing the, the unfortunate thing about it is the blood pack, which is what the group are called, they are the underwritten. <laughs> That's a D level pun, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> they are underwritten, um, which is a shame. Also. It's crazy that you have Donnie Yen in your movie. You have Donnie flipping Yen in your movie and you right. barely use him. That's insane. Um, that is like, you know, <laughs> The Force Awakens. You got Eco away in your movie and you don't use him. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> I have to take your word for that. Oh, oh right. You don't watch Star Wars. <laughs> nope. I keep forgetting. Um, this is a non-Star Wars podcast. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, that's a shame. Um, Ron Palmer, as I said, I think he's, he's he's a lot of fun in this movie. So yeah, it would have been nice to see more of him. And but he he does go out in a really cool way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean there, there there are some there are some there are some nicely imaginative deaths in this. Um, some un- hugely unpleasant ones as well. I was going to say because another one you've got in this is Tony Curran, who Tony Curran playing that role that a lot of American films, when people had seen things like Train Spotting, and they and so they want to put like a Scottish character in, and particularly they put like a Spud esque <laughs> Scottish character in, and that's basically what Tony Curran was doing here was like Spud as a vampire, and then a bit like just like Ewan Bremner then played in Wonder Woman as well. But yeah, so but that when they have to dispose of him because he's been turned into. He's been turned. He's, he's turning into a mm-hmm. reaper, isn't he? Uh, and so they like chop half of his head off and then expose him to sunlight. But the bit of his head that they chopped off is still <laughs> that, left. Okay, so like, oh. this is actually one of the things I liked a lot about the film was that they they really dug into like how are these different from vampires actually? And it's like mm. they they looked at their weaknesses and their physiology, and specifically they gave us that scene like even cutting their head off doesn't kill them like look this guy's quarter mm. of his head is still alive independently <laughs> um i yeah. really enjoyed that stuff and I, th- I don't know if that's like that to me felt like the Guillermo del toro stuff really coming out where he's like let's delve into yeah. the mythology and the the sort of weirdness of this idea and what it actually means as opposed to just being like oh they're the vampires for vampires like they really yeah. dug into it and they spent a lot of time on it and that was one of the things i was like "Ooh, give me more of that they they literally dig into it in yeah. the extended autopsy <laughs> sequence, which is basically there to establish the thing about the bone in front of the heart. Uh, yeah, but that's a creative way of doing it, right? To, yeah, like, to set up no, the weakness yeah, yeah. that you can stab. Yeah, you can stab it in the side of the heart if you. But can it get is there. also just a really obvious. Um, that's that's going to be relevant at the end of the film, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I know that we mentioned it a little bit earlier. Um, but we for, we forgot to mention that there's a point in the film where then when they do an autopsy of one of the new vampires, the Reapers, and the level of detail when they open them up is absolutely incredible. I'm sure Galama had an absolute ball uh, designing all of that, and it looks looks great. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of practical effects in this film as well. Like you can really sense when the yeah. <laughs> when the practical effects. I mean, come other, in. other than learning that bit about the weakness, I did kind of have to skim through that scene a little bit. I was like, yeah, that's a bit. That's, that's a bit <laughs> <much for> me. <laughs> there were some lingering shots. The bit when as soon as they took the rib cage off, I was like, ooh, let's see. The, but it's the fact that here. it's not. 
Um, it's not just sort of because they've created these as you know creatures. It's not just here's a load of like red human gore. It's like how how can we make this as kind of monstery and weird and and as I say again alien looking as possible. Uh, it's definitely going for that kind of yeah shockiness. But as I say that that did sort of because it, it's it's instantly what sets this film apart as just having such a completely different style and aesthetic from the first film and even actually in the, in that opening sequence where he's just going around mm-hmm. killing vampires and i don't remember in the first film it doing that thing of all of his weapons are silver and so basically he's going around shooting them or slashing at them with swords and they do that burning disappear thing um, I can't remember, is that a feature in the first film? Because I didn't remember it being as striking as it was here. Because it was funny, because I was watching the start of the film, and I was like, oh, this is giving them an excuse to do all these like visceral deaths and stuff, but without having them be like really gory and, and explicit. And then the film kind of throws that out the window, because it, it then proceeds to have a load of scenes that are really gory and explicit. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really remember what the deaths were like in the first I was film. hoping Amon might remember better than yeah, us. Yeah, no, the, 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 obviously the way Stephen Dorff goes out is iconic. Some motherfuckers always trying to ice skate uphill. Karate <laughs> kick, bang. I mean, just amazing. Um, oh, the one just before the big sort of you know, goon fight starts where he, Donal Logue, he's wearing Blade Shades and Blade takes like a you know, silver wire takes out his neck, catches the shades, puts them on, it's like, let's go. I mean, do I need to go on? That's like two of the most you know, amazing to the entire franchise. Um, Blade kills very creatively all the time. It's wonderful to see. But even like, you know, the in the final battle in this, he does like that that super move with the sword, which doesn't work, and then he has to sort of, you know, hide the sword in his um, palm and then stick it in the side, which again inventive i really like i really like the difficulty of that final fight which is again not something that you see something which i would like to see more more of in a superhero movie but yeah i i I really like the difficulty i really liked how sort of bruising and physical it is um i really like that sequence i there's a lot for me there's a lot of memorable deaths um in both blade and blade 2 we talked about how reinhardt goes out which is amazing you know what I'm saying? And then obviously that very <laughs> cool moment uh, right after that where Whistler hands Blade his shades. It's just, it's corny, but it works every time, I tell you. I had so much fun watching that, especially, you know, back in the day when I first saw the film. I, I really enjoyed watching that. I may have rewound it, rewound it okay, a few times to, to watch it and imitate it because uh, it's, it's so much fun. Speaking of Whistler, how often in this film did you forget and think that Christopherson was Kurt Russell. <laughs> I can see how 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 you might mix them up. <laughs> <laughs> little little bit of um uh Jeff Bridges in there as well yeah. of course. It's kind of interesting actually how they bring Whistler back for cuz like he ostensibly dies in the first film, right? Yeah. And then the yeah. opening sequence of this one is actually we're undoing all that. I think it's probably a good decision, but I think they may be And then they kill him in the third one. <sighs> God, in the yeah. dumbest way as well. In really dumb way. Oh my gosh. Sorry, sorry. I so I, I apologize. I said that we won't speak of the third one. I'm talking about the third one. My fault. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. You're allowed. We're going to get you back for it. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They spend all this time trying to set up the idea, like, oh, maybe Whistler's turned. Maybe he's a villain. 
like maybe mm. i guess they were trying to make you think he's become a familiar but i don't know it doesn't really work because like he was almost a vampire i don't know it just at no point in this film did i actually believe he was maybe a bad guy <laughs> and it's not from mm. having seen it before it was just like you're hammering it so hard it doesn't feel subtle. I, I don't think if it if that was the twist, I wouldn't be impressed. Mm. Like I think that's maybe why my suspicion fell on like fucking Jay over there, Jason Muse or whatever he was. <laughs> I think they yeah. I think the idea is that Whistler is the red herring, so that you don't see it coming when Scud. Turns yeah, but, out. The, but actually, <laughs> the problem is it's so yeah. blatant. Mm-hmm. exactly yeah. yeah but it's no i mean I, I think we say about it being interesting that they bothered to bring him back and i think as i say it's like because he is the only thing from the first film that comes back for this one and i think it's the because you know obviously the, the first film ends with him still ostensibly having that female love interest character around but obviously you, it, it's batman returns syndrome <laughs> where the love interest from the first film gets completely forgotten mm-hmm. but it's doubly a shame in this because as i was saying to have a Mm-hmm. black woman as a co-lead in the blade was really you know mm. ahead of the game and yeah you know th- they would have definitely benefited from bringing her back i'm not sure why they didn't yeah this film is not good with women generally right because there's one no. one character in the whole film two <laughs> two there's the, there's there's another one of the blood pack who you've already forgotten oh yeah, about, yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah okay yeah yeah i said character uh, the one who was apparently going to be tr- played by tracy lords at one point but yeah so that's the thing so he so because whistler is the only link you 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 need some link because you need you need a character or a thing that Blade cares about in order to kick off the plot that brings him in with the vampires. Otherwise, he's just floating around on his own with this new tech guy that you've never met before. Now, potentially, could that character, instead of being Whistler, could that have been Karen? Was that maybe a possibility, but they couldn't get the actress back or they decided that they didn't just want to... I mean, was it a rare example of like Hollywood going, actually, this is a bit awkward if we just use this female character to, to get captured and kick off a plot? That's I doubt that's the case because that's too much self-awareness, but you know, you never know. But yeah, I, I think that's why you, you have this awkward... Kind Kind of this character who we we seemingly killed off in a definitive way. Oh, actually, no, he got turned into a vampire, so he's alive. Yeah, no, it's a bit of retconning, um, for sure. But you know, at least for this movie, I'm glad that they brought him back. Uh, however, haphazard it may have been, because that relationship between he and Blade is really cool mm. and it really works for me. Um, so the positive outweigh outweighs the negative of. You know, having to really do a hasty bit of retconning to make it semi-plausible. But I hear what you're saying. Uh, so, actually, one thing about this film that sometimes I've, I have this criticism of, of superhero movies, which is that they sort of over-personalise the stakes a lot. And it's like, you don't need Captain America to have a personal connection to whatever villain he's fighting. Like, he's the villain and Captain America's the hero. That's enough. Mm. But... Also, in this movie, like, they spend so much time in the first film making Blades... His his fight against vampires is so personal, and it's, it's like, mm. a mission born out of his entire existence. Mm. And he resolves it. Yeah. And in this film, it's just like, he... He just fights the latest vampires, and I just... I didn't feel like he, he ever felt like there was any investment in the struggle he was going through he was just a bit like oh yeah team up no don't team up whatever i don't really care like i'm just here just here for the ride well i think that's what they were trying to do and they half succeeded in having that relationship between blade and nissa because (laughs) nissa is a vampire 
but Blade is sort of interested in her, even though he sort of hates that entire race and wants to rid the world of the race. And I think there's a lot of interesting things you could get into there if the film, if the script was more concerned with it. But even with all of that, there's still some really good, some really good moments between the same blade. I think, I mean, her death scene, yes, I've mentioned that it could have been more impactful, but the fact that it's Nyssa, who is a vampire, choosing to go out by looking at the sunrise rather than turning to a reaper is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful moment. And it just makes me wish that there was more focus put on that relationship so that it could have hit even harder than it did. Yeah, well, that's a, like, I think it's a beautiful image, but I didn't really feel the emotion of, yeah, of that no, moment. I, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Yeah, it could have been could have been so much better than it were. And like, maybe part of that was because of the stuff they cut. So, you know, yeah, you've got to work with what what's actually in the film. Agreed. It's a shame. Agreed. I want to I want to mention one thing before I forget about Nomak, who's played by Luke Goss. <laughs> Luke Goss, yeah. If 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 if, if there are any of our American listeners who don't know who Bros were, Bros were a, a British boy band in the nineteen eighties. Go and find uh, a documentary. Uh, I'm sure you'll be able to find it online. Uh, it may even like be on like Netflix internationally. <laughs> uh, called After the Screaming Stops. It is an astonishing documentary that came out about a year ago about what happened to this boy band made up of these brothers Matt and Luke Goss uh, in the years after the height of their fame. Obviously, one of the things that happened was that Luke Goss went and did films for a little while and did did Blade 2 and did Hellboy 2 as well. So Guillermo del Toro obviously liked him. That's what I was going to mention because yeah. um, <laughs> the, he, he, the character he plays in Blade 2 is very similar to the character he plays <laughs> in <laughs> Hellboy 2. I, actually, would, <laughs> I must take issue with the word character. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, I just thought that was an interesting note to point out. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's just it's just weird. I mean, at least later in the film, he's basically unrecognisable. But certainly at the start of the film, it's like, that's Luke Goss. What's, yeah. what's Luke Goss doing in this film? I mean, even, even more so than Danny. I think Danny John Jules gets away with it. I mean, I do a little bit. because you know, <laughs> I mean, I do I a am, lot, but... and I'm, I'm not even a Red Dwarf <laughs> yeah. guy as much as you are. Like, I am a Red Dwarf guy, but... <laughs> yeah. But I think he's been in enough stuff that Danny John Jules acting in things is not weird. Oh, so, it's definitely weird. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, all right. It is a bit weird, um, but yeah, it's 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 not as weird as Matt Goss anyway. So mm. that's the 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 takeaway from that. Luke Luke Goss is not the weird one out of the two brothers in in that film, but it's yeah, it's well worth. It. And 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 you know him doing Blade and stuff does get talked about in that. So, but one of the things that struck me about blade 2 in general was it was like oh this is a post matrix action movie isn't it because suddenly everyone's hanging out in nightclubs wearing black leather like flailing around in slow motion around like while bullets are being fired at them and they're sort of sub techno music playing on the soundtrack well blade predated the matrix and blade had all of that just stuff. yeah blade had all of that stuff but i feel like blade 2 really leans into it a lot uh, more. yeah 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 and you know, of course, it worked after the Matrix hit. And when when did Reloaded come out? Was that that might have been a couple of years after this? Two thousand and three, four, yeah, yeah. two thousand three, two thousand three. The like this film is is clearly influenced by the Matrix in the same way X Men was. I, yeah. I, 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 I mean, it's a two way street. It's a two way. Yeah, but, see, it. this, but this is the thing. This, this, I say the same thing about you know the. Blade and the X-Men conversation. It all comes down to Blade not getting its proper due. 
because it did predate X-Men. It did predate The Matrix. And a lot of the stuff that you see in both of those films, Blade did first. And there's not many people... Basically, I wish more people would to acknowledge that. Because it's a big deal. The thing I would say about that is, d- despite being based on a comic, Blade isn't a superhero film. Like, in, in any recognisable way, it's, it's not adhering to the tropes of a superhero movie. So I think I think staying its influence on the superhero genre as anything major is maybe stretching it. Like it's it's more action horror than it is superhero. I don't know. I don't know about that because the template. Okay, so what do you think? What do you think fed into superhero movies from Blade, or do you just think Blade is an actual good Marvel film, and that's that led inevitably to more good Marvel films? Like this is I don't see Blade's influence on the on the Marvel films that followed if you see what I mean. I don't know about that. I mean I I all I know is that the the template which I see in Blade and in Blade 2 is the template I see in many a Marvel movie. But do we have some examples cuz I I don't see I don't see that template being replicated. I see like I think the Marvel movies that followed immediately and we're talking about things like X-Men and Ghost Rider and and Daredevil and Fantastic Four, like they all, none of them have a through line that goes through Blade. If you see what I mean, I think I think Blade is more in a different tradition entirely. Hmm. I mean, I would need to think about that statement, but I I can't remember exactly what article I read, but I know that. See, I I feel hesitant saying that I know when I'm forgetting the article, but I've read pieces that you know, have <laughs> stated that you wouldn't have X Men without Blade in terms of Blade for however much in your mind that may not have influenced or the template may have been, you know, much different to what we see today. Blade was a comic book property which which made money, which convinced the people who were backing X-Men to make X-Men in the first place. So, you know, you say chicken and egg, without Blade's success, I'm not saying that we would never have gotten it, but maybe we wouldn't have gotten it as soon as we did. And again, it's, it's hard to sort of, you know, fully qualify anything to this because you know it's, it's ballooned into what it's ballooned to but at the end of the day i still think that blade still doesn't get the amount of acknowledgement it should for being in my mind the focal point of where we are today i mean there are definitely things that i think blade should get more recognition for and it is like hey do you realize you had this like mega successful action movie like starring a black superhero in 99 like and it took us Ooh. another 20 years to get black panther like what, what's that about yeah like that's definitely something i think you really need to go back to blade for that but i think in terms of like blade was an adult movie like not an all ages movie it wasn't it didn't really do a superhero thing it was more of a horror action movie like it it was in the tradition of you know those action star led movies in a way that like x-men spider-man ghost rider like all of those films aren't i mean maybe ghost rider but you know ben affleck was an action star right not really, you know. So I think certainly what you're talking about in terms of like proving that a superhero movie could be good and successful or at least critically acclaimed and successful because, you know, if we're remembering rightly, the late 90s were not a hot time for superhero movies and there were people saying like, oh, I guess you've, um, you've had your... I don't, su- know, I don't know which <laughs> movies you're talking about. I mean, Batman but, and Robin, uh, James. I, I mean, I know what you're talking about. That, 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 was, that was hot shit. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sold a lot of toys. maybe it didn't (laughs) it made it got a lot of toys made i think we're forgetting a little film called steel oh my gosh because it's (laughs) weird isn't it there were people saying like 
you know, superhero movies have had their day. Like, you mm. had a couple of good Batmans, oh. you had Superman, and it's just a load of crap now. And then Blade came along and went, no, actually, there's a way to do a superhero character in a in a way that's going to draw some interest and, and excite people. And then we got X-Men, and then we got Spider-Man. And so in the, in the sense that it went, hang on, don't write off an entire genre because of a couple of dud movies. Blade definitely deserves recognition for that. I, I still think... There are there are definitely elements stylistically and uh, stylistically and aesthetically and in terms of approach and in terms of being consciously not comic booky and that sort of thing in in and we are kind of talking I guess more about the first film than than this one but that that weren't present in the genre before the first Blade film now whether X Men is directly influenced by Blade or directly influenced by The Matrix or both or neither. And I think I think Blade and first Blade and The Matrix with its uh, industrial nightclub-y, cyberpunky black leather coat vibes are both coming from a very similar place but doing it independently of one another. Mm-hmm. So whether whether the superhero genre goes that way because of The Matrix or goes that way because of Blade because I think we can all agree that it it, it starts to go that way <laughs> it, it because goes of that X-Men. Way, yeah. I I I would certainly say that there are characteristics in the Blade films that for a while became commonplace before we started to move into a different era which is the era that we're in now which is let's make these things look as much like comics as possible while still having them look real which is not where we were in the early 2000s well apart from Spider I was about to say but, I think if um... I was going to if I was going to trace everything back to a single superhero movie I would say it's Raimi's Spider-Man because like that's that's what naturally led to everything afterwards, and like I I don't I don't think Raimi Spider Man and Blade really share any DNA. Not least because like there's this thing in you know the Blade franchise generally. You said like oh it's not consciously comic booky. Like how you couldn't possibly do a comic book version of Blade because it's not like didn't have a costume, didn't have a you know layer. He didn't have sidekicks. He did have a. Did not have that jazzy green outfit in the 70s. Maybe in the 70s, but like it was long since swapped for sort of a coat. <laughs> oh, it was a, well, no, it was a, it was a jazz it was a, it was a jazzy coat. It's a very badass leather jacket. Thank you very much, James. <laughs> coat. But like the the movie version of Blade actually has more of a look than the comics version. Like he has the mm. he's got the leather coat, and he's got the sunglasses and he's got the sword in his back like you see that, you go, oh yeah, that's Blade, that's movie Blade, but like none of that comes from the comics. Like that's that's been made up for the films. He's the only character, well, not the only, character, but he's one of the few characters who can who's allowed to wear sunglasses indoors because he just <laughs> makes it look cool. You should put that. You should put that in his Twitter bio. Should he ever get one? <laughs> There's actually a bit where. Um, just after he puts the sunglasses on, I was like, oh, he wears the sunglasses because of the UV bombs he uses. And then he doesn't, he doesn't, they just shoot <laughs> the things instead. I was like, oh, now I got that wrong. There was, I have to say, there's a little, there was a little element of, while they do kind of try and have some imaginative sequences with that, just to, to be a bit nitpicky, having your hero have a weapon that is basically a massively devastating bomb that will affect everybody else around him, but not him. It's <laughs> a little bit of a cheat. <laughs> Can't help it, man. He's the daywalker. It's like using the typhoon He's the daywalker. That's, that's his thing. <laughs> that's a very yeah. cool nickname, by the way. That is a cool nickname, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who is it? 
There's a Chip Starsky comic where, where, where someone's interviewing Blade and he's like going, you know, everyone can walk in the day, right? It's not just I was just going to say, yeah, that's like, I'm not sure it is that cool a nickname because... Yeah. <laughs> of course The point is, like he is a day-walking vampire. <laughs> unlike the other vampires, but yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Please, please send me that. I want to I mean, they can. the The other vampires can still walk in the daytime. They just can't go outside. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure Angel did a lot of walking in the day. There's a lot in Angel and Buffy. There are a lot of things of like vampires standing up in the middle of the day by knocking on the front door and coming out from a blanket, being like slightly steaming. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. oh come on! Like either they can go out in the day or they can't. They can't like sort of do it if they're under a blanket. Uh, no, that's pretty, pretty. Cassidy and Preacher's like that as well. I'd say that's a pretty, pretty commonplace vampire trope. I don't yeah, know but they it really devalues sunlight as a sort of dangerous proposition if they can just run around with a blanket over their head and be fine. Have you ever tried running around with a blanket over? Your yeah, head? exactly. It's, it's difficult. Where you're going? <laughs> exactly. It's just so it one trip and you're fucking ashes. I'd just stay indoors, thanks. Yeah, but sometimes you know. Sometimes you've got to deliver exposition to Buffy, and it has to happen. In person, not over a phone. No, I was just going to say, sometimes you've got to get to the post office to collect a parcel and they close at like three o'clock. So <laughs> you can't go after dark. Uh, well, my main takeaways from this is that I need to watch Buffy, don't I? Have you not seen Buffy? I remember watching it back in the day, but like, you know, oh, man. The, 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 the odd episode here and there, I have never sort of fully you know, sat down so, like, I'm going to watch Buffy from season one. The thing about Buffy is that it is the best superhero TV show that there has ever been. Because everything wow. about superhero tropes gets applied to Buffy, basically. Like, aside from the fact that she doesn't have a costume and a code name, it is wall-to-wall superheroes. And specifically, like, it's massively influenced by... Personally, I think it's Claremont's X-Men that has the biggest influence on it. But, you know, it comes from everything. Like, Scooby-Doo's in there. Superman is in there. Like, Batman, I guess, to an extent. Yeah, there's a lot of Batman and Angel. You know, like, all all of these superhero influences went into creating this, this setup and executing this setup. And I'll make you a deal. I will watch Buffy if you watch the Justice League animated series. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll do what say, I can. So, that's our, so our, our comic book recommendations for Blade, then, are to watch Buffy, the Justice League TV show, and Bross after the screaming stops. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. Well, do we have anything else particularly burning, no pun intended, about uh, Blade 2 that we want to discuss? I mean, I think just to, just to kind of to, to summarise on kind of how we feel about it, it's definitely, it is definitely a better film than the first one. Yeah. I am still not super grabbed by it. I can't say I'd watch it again, but I appreciate that it has got far more of an aesthetic and a feel to it beyond being about Wesley Snipes at the centre of it, who we haven't really talked about. Amon, do you want to enthuse about Wesley Snipes for a little bit before we wrap up? About why why is he so great and what are we missing in terms of his charisma in these films? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was doing an Eddie Murphy ranking podcast the other day, and one of the things that I said <laughs> in that podcast was that there are certain lines which only he can deliver, some of which are so clearly improvised and yet, and now, iconic, and the lines where we immediately think of when we think of certain films. And I think that's similar of Wesley Snipes in this in these movies. You know, some motherfuckers are only some motherfuckers. You know, try and skate uphill. There's no other person I can imagine saying that line with you know as much badassness as Wesley Snipes <laughs> does, because he makes that line work. 
And when we think of Blade, that's the line, you know, that's one of the lines that immediately comes to mind. And that's one. That's why I said, like, you know, when we started talking about Blade 2, one of the first things I said, this is Wesley Snipes' Blade, not Blade played by Wesley Snipes. And, mm. you know, there's a lot of unique pleasures that come from that. And the fact that it's so distinctive that, James, you said that the comics sort of, you know, redid some stuff to make it more mm-hmm. like, you know, I get that, you know, obviously some of that comes from the fact that the film was successful, but they don't do that if this interpretation doesn't work as well as it does. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like there have been, there have been comic book movies where the reinterpretation does not feed back into the comics because they just go, mm, no thanks. So that alone, I think is just testament to how great uh, Wesley Snipes is in this role. The fact that when this new Blade, sort of when the rumours had sort of started up uh, that there's going to be a new Blade film, the fact that Wesley's, Wesley's name was still being mentioned as he had to bring Wesley back, he has to play a character again, even at this late stage, <laughs> it's just a testament to how great he was in this role. Um, so, so yeah, I, th- for me, I mean, this is either number one or number two on you know, Wesley Snipes' most iconic roles. And if you go back and look at his filmography, that is not a small thing to say. It's no Simon Phoenix. I'm not. I'm not even joking. Yeah. I love Demolition Man. Oh yeah. I mean, I think again we talked about this on the first one. How amazing! Like, I think part of the disappointment with him in the first one was that he's not as much fun in that as I find him in Demolition Man because he's <laughs> fantastic yeah. in that. Yeah, yeah. That's fair. I'm not. I'm not going to dispute that. I love Demolition Man too. Um, but yeah, I think he's fantastic in this role, and I hope that when Mahershala Ali's Blade does come around. I hope that they have at least something for Wesley to do because the fact that people are so excited about a new Blade movie, I think you have to owe a lot of that to Wesley Snipes himself. So it would be nice if Marvel recognised that and paid him back in some way. I would like form. I would like to see Mahershala Ali Blade be the son of Wesley Snipes Blade. That would be amazing. They I'd should definitely that. do that. I would like to see Mahershala Ali's Blade be British because that's what Blade is supposed to be. And although we have had British-accented characters slash heroes in the MCU, we, we haven't had a British superhero in the MCU yet. So, Captain um, Britain is there. Grab Black Knight very soon. Yeah, that is true. He's Canadian, isn't he? No. Uh, good question. No, I, th- I thought have I made Black- this mistake before? I think I've called, called him Canadian before. I think Black Knight is uh, American, and that's sort of the the yeah. duality of the character is like, hey, he's like an American knight. I don't know. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. No, I think you're right. I think I've made this mistake before, and I don't know why I keep thinking he's Canadian. It's because he's got he's got like Arthurian links, but you know, yeah. like Canada. no, he, no, he is he he's American, but yeah, he has a bit of a British link, yeah, like family link and stuff. Um, uh, one thing I want to say just while wrapping up is that. In spite of being a bit down on this film, like I definitely like like Seb said, better film than Blade One. Definitely the best of the three Blades. Interesting in a lot of ways, if if only to see sort of where Guillermo del Toro came from. Mm. In every way, in every respect, almost more fun to watch than the first Blade. I think, aside from not having that ice skating line, because that is fucking brilliant. <laughs> I think, having said like. It doesn't take a lot from the comics. I think what what Blades and the Blade films show in general is that actually cinema is the natural home of a character like Blade because you just you can't do anything that this these films do on the page and make it as cool. Mm. Like it, it's hard to get the action in there. It's hard to get the quips in there. It just it doesn't look as good on the page because 
because horror is is hard to do yeah except to build suspense and this is like action horror and that's that's what makes it work that's one of the things why that's one of the reasons why i'm interested in blade because i think along with um doctor strange and the multiverse of madness i love saying that title um <laughs> with blade um the MCU is going to, you know, finally dip its toe in the, in the horror realm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be very interesting to see. Mm. Yep. I mean, ho- horror comics, you know, are and have been a thing. And obviously, like, EC comics in the 50s and stuff. That's a very different type of horror. But, um, yeah, I think vampires and, and Blade and that sort of stuff, that's a movie tradition. Mm-hmm. The, the, the vampire genre, I mean, obviously, well, it dates back to, to books. But vampires, modern vampires as we understand them... Are a, are a tradition that's been very defined by cinema. And I think a lot of horror tropes are defined by cinema. Um, and even, you know, Marvel has dipped its toe into horror-y characters. It's had vampire characters, it's had werewolf characters, that kind of thing. But they all came about when Marvel was very consciously doing a line of comics that was intended to capitalise on things that were popular in cinema. And, and I, yeah, I think that's why... Blade works much better as a film character than as a comics character mm-hmm. because he comes from an inherently film tradition, whereas superheroes are an inherently comics tradition that has been translated to film. So, yeah, that, yep. that makes sense. I, w- I will add this, because um, I know, James, you were saying that you know it's hard to make Blade look cool in the comics. There was a Blade Wolverine thing I was reading way back when, but I remember it because one of the dialogue is that, you know, I think Wolverine sort of unsheets his claws, they're about to fight, going on about, you no, know, it's got like, Six claws, adamantium, etc. And Blade still applies. He draws his blade. It's like, that's why they call me Blade. I only need one. And then they fight. <laughs> and that, you can't tell me that's not cool. I need to find, I need to find, I need to find exactly where, what comment that's from. But I remember that distinctly. So. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good line. So, is that about it? Have we about covered it? I think so. So that was Blade 2. Like I say, Amon, I think if you're, if you're willing to have a nice ranty episode, uh, we could definitely look at getting you back for Blade Trinity if you'd uh, like to complete the set. Man, <laughs> you can try and contact me all you want, but that's just going to be my smell, man. It's going to bring up. All, all of a sudden, we'll stop being your favourite podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we we shall see. We shall see. Maybe I need to let off some steam when you, when you finally get around to that. Yeah, in fairness, way. I don't think it's going to be hype the list of stuff we're doing next. <laughs> No, but equally, you know, we we are slightly running out of stuff, so I think it'll be less than four years before we eventually get <laughs> That is true, it. yeah. Um, James, have you got something to wrap up this episode for us in a, in a fun game kind of way? Yep. So I was struck in this movie by the lack of personalities by each of the characters. <laughs> Careful. So, <laughs> I mean, lots of them had, had names. Not many of them seem very memorable. So my game this week is called Blade Memoir. <laughs> I'm just pausing for the applause. Um, and so, <laughs> who was sarcastic enough to actually do that? That may have been me. And so, the game is. All I want you to do is. I have a list of names of characters from this movie. There are 15 in total. I want you to name them back and forth until you cannot name any more. Chupa. Nah, uh, so we will start. I'm on. We'll start <laughs> with you. So three, two, one, go. Chupa. Nisa. Whistler. Assad. Scud. <laughs> Reinhardt. Ah, <laughs> oh, crap. Um, <laughs> uh, oh. 
<laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> There's one fairly obvious one you haven't mentioned. It's the lead of the movie. <laughs> oh, Blade. Blade, Whistler. there you go. Whistler was already said. Oh, did we did we do um Nomad? We did not do oh, Nomad. Oh shit. Uh, um <laughs> There are seven oh, left. Oh, what's the name of the, the dad? Um uh, I got nothing. <laughs> I got, I got nothing. That guy's a really difficult one. Uh if I we didn't talk about this guy on the podcast, anyone remember the name of or Amon specifically since it's your go? Do you remember the name of the guy with long hair who turns up at the start and then blade finishes him off at the end oh man that's just made me realize that i meant to mention fucking palace and we forgot to do so <laughs> i don't remember i don't remember the guy's name but that i'd love i love that the film ends on such a fun badass comedic beat yeah it especially because out of the cinema on a high I love after, it. after that first scene i was like is he really gonna let a vampire go <laughs> And then he turns up and he's like, I haven't forgotten. I was like, yes, yes. Um, okay, so I'm going to give Seb the win then. Uh, that character is called Rush. Oh. So the the ones you guys missed, uh, Damaskinos, 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 I don't know. It's Damaskinos. Damaskinos. It's really cool name. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, Snowman, who I believe is uh, Donnie Yen. <laughs> there was also Villain. Don't remember that guy at all. Or girl. Uh, Priest, who is one of the ones who dies early on. Oh, he's the Scott. He's Tony Curran. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Lighthammer and Coonan. Oh, yeah. Or Conan? Conan? Conan. K-O-U-N-E-N. Those are the 15 characters of Blade. And we got halfway through that list, which is better than I thought we were going to do. Yeah. <laughs> There's, um, I, don't, I don't know if anyone's ever seen uh, a thing that was on the BBC in the early 2000s called Cruise of the Gods that was a TV movie about Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon as the stars of a, a 1980s Doctor Who-esque sci-fi show mm-hmm. on, a, on a fan cruise. But there's a gag towards the end of that where it's revealed that all of the names of the characters in the show were just anagrams of types of curry. Um, <laughs> and these names all sound like they're anagrams. <laughs> Well, there you go. Damsar and Romac. <laughs> <laughs> maybe next, maybe when we do Blade Three, we'll we'll have a rematch of Blade Memoir. <laughs> I gotta say, Guillermo del Toro and character names, not bad. Because <laughs> I think of this, and I think of Pacific Rim, which still has one of the greatest character names I've ever known: Marshall Stacker Pentecost, played I was by Idris Stacker Pentecost. <laughs> and then, see, this is why. I have you know one of the main issues of Pacific Rim Two is that Stacker Pentecost's son is called Jake. There's no way. Right? There's <laughs> no on. way Stacker yeah. Pentecost was calling his son Jake. Jake Pentecost, <laughs> like no. Just no, no. <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, uh, no, it's, uh, I just yeah, it's unrealistic, ridiculous. Far more unrealistic than you know, thirty foot tall robots. <laughs> <laughs> that that's one true. we might have to do on the podcast when we run out of comic yeah. book films that's 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 genre adjacent enough that we can do pacific rim one of these days yeah i'd love to do pacific rim gotta cancel the apocalypse man <laughs> yep. i was so ready to dislike that film as well i was like wow this trailer looks dumb and then i saw the film i was like this film is awesome <sighs> well yeah, it is I think that's uh that's it then for for our blade 2 episode thanks very much amon for joining us 
once again. Really nice to have you back. Yeah, thanks for uh, coming we'll back. hopefully not leave it so long next time. Thank you for having me. Before you get too famous for us. <laughs> uh, anything anything you want to plug? Where can people find you? Where can they find stuff that you've written? Other things that you do? I'm on Twitter at a woman. Uh, you can find a lot of the stuff that I write in Empire Magazine. There's a massive, massive feature uh, which I've written for the new issue of the magazine, which will be out in three weeks or so, uh, which you, you should definitely keep an eye out for. If you follow me on Twitter, I'll be promoting that very soon. I also do what I like to call montages, which are summer blockbuster mashups. My latest one from a few months ago is still my pinned tweet. Uh, I'm trying to find the track to work on the one for next year. If you have any recommendations, please let me know, because finding the track is the most hardest, time-consuming, <laughs> difficult part of my entire process. I listen to literally hundreds of tracks trying to find the right one, and I can't do any editing until I found the track. So it can be a very frustrating thing looking looking for music. But if you have any good recommendations, please let me know. Well, they are worth all of that time. They are They are one of the best things about film Twitter. So... Oh, you guys. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so, yeah. Um, but, yeah, feel, please uh, follow me on Twitter and get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. I like I try and reply to everybody. Uh, so, yeah, be good to hear from you. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, well, if uh, if you, listener, not you, Amon, although this, this applies to you as well, Amon, if you enjoyed this episode, <laughs> you can you can find more and subscribe on Acast, <laughs> Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Player FM, Overcast, Google, or any other podcast app of choice. Uh, if we're not on your podcast app of choice, do let us know. You can find a full index of every episode at cinematicuniverse.com, along with uh, all the links to subscribe and features and reviews and that kind of thing. Must get around to writing some more at some point. Uh, you can help us out by rating or reviewing on your podcast platform, and you can really help us out by backing the Patreon at patreon.com slash cinematicuniverse, which helps out with our production costs and makes us feel validated. If you back us on there, you get to hear episodes ad-free and sometimes early, as well as bonus material when we get around to doing it. Thanks to Brendan Roberts for being a top backer on there. Uh, you can buy our merchandise at cinematicu.redbubble.com. Get in touch with us on Facebook, on Twitter at cine underscore verse, or with an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.